Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Alex Sullivan. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode six for season 10. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 21st of April for release on the 6th of May, 2020. This episode is sponsored by CloudBees Rollout. CloudBees Rollout is where developers come to ship changes at will. When you have a solution to manage feature flags at scale, you're empowered to continuously and intelligently roll out changes as soon as they are code complete on any platform, even mobile. Decouple development from code releases for real-time change control. Roll back only the changes you want, toggle features, use multivariate flags for A-B testing, and nix misbehaving features with the kill switch. Sign up for CloudBees rollout today and get 20% off. Visit https rollout.io slash ray dash wenderlich dash offer and fill out the form on the right. We will email you a discount code that you can use to access CloudBees rollout for completely free. Feel free to start a trial and use your discount code when checking out after your trial expires in 14 days. And we thank CloudBees rollout for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. I'm Drew Freeman here with my ever ready with No Shakeups co-host Alex Sullivan. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Our guest for this episode is Victoria Ganda. Victoria is an Android engineer and technical author. The conferences she has spoken at have been an enjoyable way to connect with the technical community and exchange information with others. On this episode, we'll check our work with test-driven development for Android, and then Alex will talk about experimenting with coroutines. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to ask, first of all, the question I've been asking all of our, our, our guests is, where are you located? Um, I am in Chicago. Okay, so you're only an hour off from us. You, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's about 9 p.m. here on the East Coast. It's about 8 p.m. where you are as we're rolling this, uh, this recording here. How has the weather been? Um, not too bad starting to warm up. Still a little bit chilly, but in general, not too bad. We've had some good sunny days. We've actually seen a, we actually saw a couple of snowflakes today. We, we yeah. had some really cold and heavily windy weather today. We had, we had the, uh, like the first real snow of the year here in Boston, like the first overnight snow to stick. A little bit late. Yeah. Feels, feels (laughs) right. Feels right. Well, that's what happens when nobody's outside. (laughs) Yeah. Victoria, how are you dealing with, with uh, shelter in place and all of that other things that's going on during COVID? Um, going as best as I can. Um, Thankfully, work for me hasn't been impacted too much. Um, I work remotely all of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I already had a nice at-home office set up. Um, It's definitely weird with everything outside of work. So just taking it one day at a time. So what do you typically do when you're not stuck in the house? What, what What are the things that you like to do to pass the time? A lot of the things that I do when I'm not doing like the conferences and writing and stuff that were mentioned is um i like doing like stuff walking around in the city um also if you can see if you're watching the video there's a whole bunch of board games behind me so um love playing board games um also i also like hang out at home i like reading um i have a cat and a hedgehog who keep me company while i'm reading a hedgehog a cat cat and a hedgehog yes both how do they deal with each other (laughs) <laughs> um, the hedgehog just kind of doesn't care about the cat, and the cat is 
ever curious about the hedgehog, even though they <laughs> lived together for a couple years. So the cat is like, ooh, what is this thing? Oh, it's Pokey. And sometimes <laughs> never remembers that it's Pokey. What is the, what's the care like for a hedgehog? Um, you like have to like clean the cage and stuff like the same as like maybe like a rabbit. Clean the cage, give it food and water. Um, you also want to like take it out and like socialize it every day. Um, and that looks a little bit different depending on like the personality of the hedgehog. Some like to explore more, some like to cuddle. Mm. Um, so just making Ooh, sure they have with a hedgehog. That mm. sounds a little, that sounds a little tough. <laughs> But when they're relaxed, their quills are all nice and calm and you can pet them. So that helps. Not so prickly. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So not to get too personal, besides the cat and the hedgehog, are you forced to shelter alone or do you have friends or someone to to keep you company? Um, I'm here with my um, fiance and my roommate. Well, that's good. I mean, at least at at least that gives you somebody to stumble over for the next couple of months. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a mixed. It's a double edged sword. It's like on the one hand, I'm not in the house completely alone. On the other hand, I'm going to kill people really, really soon. (laughs) So I see the board games. I just recently got turned on to a a website that basically is um, most mostly board games that you can play. Uh, online, I, I have to find the, the site for that, but I'll put it in the show notes. It's a really cool site that uh, lets you play board games with other people via the net. And uh, there seems to be a trend now of people who are playing board games and opening Zoom at the same time. Mm. I like that. That's so, nice. you, so you basically yeah. are almost getting there. It's just, just, just <laughs> yeah. so close. Not, not quite. Right. So close, but not quite. There's also a um, there's a Steam game. I don't remember the name of it. Is it RPG uh, Maker, where there's like lots of plugins that you can... And it's probably not RPG maybe Maker. Maybe Tabletop Simulator? Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. about right. And you can have like all these different, you know, plugins or whatever, downloadable content for lots of different board games. So that's a nice mm-hmm. way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Now, did I read somewhere that you also dance? Uh, yes, I grew up, I've been dancing since I was in kindergarten. I danced all through um college and now i mostly take dance classes just for fun and exercise um but i was dancing and performing all through college what kind of um, dance um it's ranged from ballet tap jazz modern oh, wow. um, some musical theater yay um keep it interesting it even like went into like dance technology um, which is a lot of fun what what exactly is dance technology it Does is. it help you dance? Because I could use that. I could use that dance technology. <laughs> I mean, so it's kind of a really broad field of study. Um, I'm sure there are like some things that will video watch you and analyze your movements through like machine learning and oh. give you hints. Um, but the stuff that I was looking at, um, I was using an Xbox Connect to try to like track your movements. Oh, that's cool. Um, I did two different things with that one was to like kind of like notate and write down what you were doing using like the special like dance notation and then the other was a performance piece where the like background projection behind the dancer um was um uh determined by the movements i think i've seen things like that that's that's really outstanding beautiful technology fascinating a lot of fun uh, so let's talk about some other fun things like <laughs> developing code from a test-driven point of view. <laughs> that's, I, I figure that's, that's what we're here to talk about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I'm going to try to not let my little iOS eyes gloss over today <laughs> because I, I do appreciate the concepts of test-driven uh, development. Um, can you give us uh, the 20,000-foot view for somebody who has not done TDD before what that means? One thing that you might be happy to hear since you'll be here for this whole time listening is that um, at the root, it's a software development process. Mm-hmm. So it's more of like a way of thinking and a way of writing your code that can be applied no matter what platform you're working on, whether you're doing mobile, web, embedded, anything else, writing for an Xbox Connect to be using a dance performance. <laughs> um, you can use test-driven development for all of those things. And really the TLDR of it is that you write tests for your code before you write the actual code. Um, that way, you know you have tests for it. You know the tests are testing what it is they need to test. Um, and then they're there for you in the future as well. So you're basically flipping the idea of the unit test on its head. A little bit, yeah. And that you like kind of put, you, you write the test before you write the code. Um, and yeah, you're writing a unit test just in a different order. So how do you how do you f- begin to see the the test point of view from the code point of view? How do you how do you begin writing from a test point of view? I'll be honest, it takes sometimes takes practice to try to like train your brain to kind of think that way. Um and I found for me it does help if you do start writing code first and then write tests and then you're like, "Okay, I know how to write tests now." Mm. And then you s- kind of start thinking about, "Okay, what are the requirements for this next piece of code that I need to write? I need a function that returns a user from the repository. Okay, I can write a test that tests that it returns a user from the repository um, rather than like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just writing this use case. Um it just says show the user on the screen um but once you start breaking it down into smaller and smaller parts um rather than show the user on the profile screen be like okay in order to get the user i need to fetch the user okay i need to write a use case for that what does this use case need to do it needs to return a user from the repository okay that is small enough that I've done that kind of test before. I can write that test. Mm. What is, uh, what's the benefit of practicing test-driven development versus, I think, what people might be more familiar with of just like writing code and then writing tests? Like why do TDD versus non-TDD? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of different reasons. Um, one is it kind of helps keep you on track. Um, it keeps you like from going like being like, oh, well, I'll need this later. I'll need this later. I might as well do this now. It helps keep you really focused and mm. you're writing tests for the thing. You're only writing the code for that thing. So you're not like going off writing extra code at that. You might find that you forgot to write tests for later because um, in hindsight, it's really easy to forget a test for a mm. case where if you're mm-hmm. writing the test first, you know, you have the test for it. It also helps make sure that like it enforces that you always have tests with your code. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, that makes sense because you yeah. like, since you're writing the test first, right. you have to have 
tests because otherwise right. you don't have code. Exactly. Um, <laughs> if you're writing the code first, it's so easy to be like, oh, I'll write the test later. Um, yeah. Later never happens. Later trust me. Never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have someone really pestering you when you review when they review your PRs. Later never happens. Never. <laughs> later becomes uh, your uh, your technical debt. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Later so becomes does... being annoyed in three years that none of your code has any tests. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. And then you have to figure out how to do TDD with legacy code, which is something mm. we can talk about. Once we get what TDD is in Overbelt. So TDD is basically taking the objective and writing a test that basically, I guess that test is going to fail until you then go write the code. Exactly. That's the whole point. Um, that's another good point about why um, TDD can be better than writing the test after because you've seen the test fail. You know it works. Um, it has happened so many times to me where I've written the test after I've written the code. I'm like, cool, it's passing. And then later I found <laughs> out it wasn't actually testing anything. Um, it's my favorite tests. <laughs> they're, they're always, always green. green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if you write it and you see it fail, you know it's testing something. Mm -hmm. um, and if you see it pass later, after you write the code that you're supposed to write, you're like, okay, it's, it's testing what I want it to test. Um, and that's something I'd recommend too. like, if you are writing your tests after you write your code, because you're like still learning, like getting that intuition about what kinds of tests you need, maybe, um, or you just don't understand the problem well enough yet to write those tests after you write the tests and it's green, change something in your code to make sure you see it fail. So, you know, it's doing its job. Um, so, you, so you're actually aiming for the unhappy path. Right. You want to see your tests fail. And of course, make them green after. But <laughs> You want um, to see them fail so that you can then see them. So you're confident in that green. That makes sense. Okay. I like that. The, the, the being confident in your green rather than just mm -hmm. you got a green, feel free to move on. You may not be mm -hmm. right. One of the things that's kind of kept me from exploring TDD, at least in in the Android world is uh, if I don't have the code yet, my IDE is yelling at me with lots of red squigglies that that method mm -hmm. doesn't exist or that that class doesn't exist. What do you, mm -hmm. how do you get around that? Or like, what is, do you, do you actually just start with zero code and tests or do you make some of the like basic shapes of the code and then write the tests or how do you get around Android <laughs> studio being angry? Yeah. Um, I think especially with like, a compiled language and a strongly yeah. typed language like Kotlin and Java, it really matters if that method or that class is there. So part of that first step is not only writing the test, but the minimum amount of code to make it pass. Um, so maybe that's setting up just like the shape of the class with just mm. that function that you need with nothing in it. Maybe it has to return like a dummy value, like null or an empty string or something. Um, but the main point there is that like it's you don't have the logic in it yet because you want to see yeah. that test fail. Um, and with that, if that's something that's really hard to do, then that could be a sign that's like maybe you don't have yeah. any logic in that method, which might be a sign mm. maybe you don't need to test that method. Maybe that's the equivalent mm. of testing a getter 
which mm. <laughs> it's like you don't test t- all your getters <laughs> um i don't <laughs> um i don't have the ci minutes for that <laughs> oh, um but yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense then that's that's something that's been a big block for me it's just I think I've I've started trying some TDD and I've seen red squigglies and just been mm-hmm. like I don't know what I'm doing I'm gonna go back to my comfort zone. So uh, yeah. we're we're talking about unit tests, but uh, and I want to have you briefly talk about the the testing pyramid. Unit mm-hmm. tests are not the only tests that we have to deal with here. Right, you can use TDD with a whole bunch of different types of tests. Um. So, so what exactly are they talking about when they talk about the testing pyramid? Um, yeah, so the testing pyramid kind of goes over a few different types of tests and how many of them that you should have. Um, we've mostly talked about unit tests here, and those are usually testing one small little unit. Usually it's like one method and one class and like one case of that. So like maybe like one branch of it. Um, they're very small, they're very focused, they're very fast, and you want the most amount of these. Um, on top of that, the next step of the pyramid, so like the middle part, is integration tests. And these kind of tests that different parts of your app work together. Um, sometimes they can test it, how your, your code interacts with another library or framework or with Android. Um, this is where the lines start to get a little bit fuzzy. Some people consider UI tests to be part of integration tests. Um, my idea is just if it is testing multiple different things, how they interact with each other. Because even though a unit, does, like a unit of your code, is working correctly, that doesn't mean it's interacting with like other classes correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and those take a little bit longer. They're a little bit bigger, um, especially if they are interacting with the Android framework or using Verbal Electric to. Yeah mock out the Android framework. Um, And then on top of that is end-to-end tests or UI tests. Um, This is where some people put UI tests in integration. Some of them put them in the top part of like UI slash end-to-end. And UI tests are testing your UI. They're opening the screen on a phone. It's clicking around on stuff, verifying that the views are there. And then end-to-end tests, will test like going through multiple screens. Um, They're often set up to hit the network when other tests are not. Um, Because the majority of your tests, you don't want to hit the network because Mm. it is, the network is flaky. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So for pretty much all your tests, except for maybe some end-to-end tests, you don't want to hit the network. Um, And on top of it being undependable, it's really slow and you're not going to want to sit there and run those tests all the time, whether that's on your own machine when you're trying to get actual work done or if that's on a CI server where you're paying for minutes um, or simply waiting for it to run so you can merge a PR. <laughs> um, oh, I know that game. <laughs> yeah. So with UI tests. So many buzzwords to catch up on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, so between UI tests, integration tests, and end-to-end tests, um, Google recommends that like 70% of your tests are unit tests, 20% are integration tests, and 10 are end-to-end tests. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never measured exactly how many I have. I just know, okay, most of my tests I want to be unit tests, 
And if I have so many UI tests that I'm not running them, then I have too many. Oh, that's um, a good measure. I like that. If I have so many that I'm no longer willing to like run the test suite, then that's too much. Yeah, like one way or another. Because the point <laughs> of tests is so that you'll run them, especially with test-driven development. Because like you're writing a test, you're running it, you're writing code, you're running the test, you're refactoring, you're running the test, mm. you're writing mm. another test, you're running the test. So mm. it's a pain to do that when you have tests that take a long time to run. Now, one of the things you mentioned was RoboElectric. Can you yes. give a quick explanation for, for more, new, more people new to the platform of what that is? Yes. Um, kind of the like, highest level explanation that I can give is it's a way to mock out the Android framework so that you can basically run a unit test without actually loading like all of Android. Um, so it, a way to unit test with alongside Android code without having to like run it on an emulator. Mm. Um, so you can do it locally on your machine. You don't have to build a whole APK, push it up to the emulator. It just kind of like mocks out the, um, context of like the world that you are running your app in. So would I, um, if I'm using RoboElectric in my tests, can you get like an activity or a fragment through RoboElectric or is it, is it for like a different layer of stuff? Um, this recently changed. So, but I, um, I'll explain it the best that I can from what <laughs> I've learned from it. Um, but, um, fairly recent in RoboElectric version four um, or RoboElectric 4.0, um, they made it so that you can start doing even UI tests oh, with RoboElectric. Um, you have to use like specific like support libraries with it, um, specific test libraries. Um, like you have to use all of like the new Android X. I don't remember what they're calling it. Like activity scenario, I think. Mm. It's like... It's a different way to basically launch your test that it looks a lot cleaner. I've looked at it. I just don't oh, remember the name right now. Mm. Um, but they updated their like espresso UI testing library. So like the latest versions of those with the latest versions of RoboElectric makes it that you can run those UI tests both like locally and on like a device. Oh, wow. That um, sounds amazing. I'm pretty sure there's some limitations. Like, I don't know if I'm you can sure. get like <laughs> GPS and sure. stuff like that in like location. And I don't know what yeah. else, but like stuff that's more tied to hardware. Mm -hmm. Um, but stuff like this is a screen that shows stuff. You can do that with nice. um, RoboElectric. Um, the benefits really cool. to that is it's, it's faster. Um, yeah. It's different than it's slightly less reliable than running on an actual device because mm -hmm. there's so many different devices out there that Android sure. behaves differently on. Um, but for like, especially if you're doing like test driven development and just like you're having to run something more often, then it's a nice tool to have. So that's um, you mentioned like not wanting to have maybe so many UI tests that that running the test suite is super slow when you're doing TDD. 
-hmm. when you're when you're going through the normal, you know, write a test, write your code, uh, make sure the test passes. Are you typically running like the whole test suite or are you just like, are you running UI tests every time you run through that flow or is it just like the singular tests that you've written? I usually write like run just the singular test that I've written mm. and then like every so often I'll run the rest of it just to make sure I didn't break them. But um, just for like to be quick, I mm. run just the test of like what I'm focusing on at that time and maybe one or two other tests if they're like directly related to what I'm doing. Um, and that's where it helps to have like focused test files where it's not like yeah. here are all of my tests for the whole <laughs> project in this file. <laughs> We're always going to run them all at once. You mean um, I shouldn't yeah. have my test.kt file up and running? I mean, you could. I won't stop you, but you know, if it, well, if it keeps it. you from if it keeps you from running them, though. <laughs> if your project uh, gets big enough, I, I having having worked on Microsoft Office, um, there there's a the, the uh, there was quick tests, and then there was the day long integration test, oh, yeah. and and you just basically said, okay, here's a major build. Step mm. away and wait to see what breaks. Um, so one of the things that comes up in, in testing, and this may not just necessarily be TDD, but testing in general is mm -hmm. mocking and stubbing. Yes. Can you talk about them and what the difference is between them? Um, I'll do the best that I can. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I feel like I have to look it up every single time I need to know the difference. Um, and there's, but, there's there's no shame in in yeah. saying in in that. Um, I I will I will share this that like for mocks I usually uh, think of those as um, a way to know that something was called on like a dependency class so you can mm. create like a mock of we'll use the same example I was using before create a mock of your repository that you pass into your use case. And then when you're testing that use case, um, you can say, was get users called on the repository? Because um, it should have been. Um, so that is one of those ideas. Another is stubbing that you mentioned. Um, and I think of that one as when you can often, like I use, mocks and stubs as the same object because it seems to work that way with Makito with the way that I've been using it and Makito is just a library for mocking and stubbing. Um, I think of stubbing as saying when I call this method um, we'll say on the repository I want it to return this user so that instead of the repository actually calling into the database actually calling into the network it's skipping that step and just returning what you want it to return because when you're unit testing your use case, you only want to unit test use case, only the code in that class, not the class in the repository. You don't want to test the stuff in the database or the network. So you want to be, have a way to bypass all of that. And one way of bypassing that is creating those stubs and be like, okay, stub out this method, don't actually reach out to the database, just return this user that I give you. And that helps keep 
your unit tests a bit more contained. Now, eventually you're going to want to test your persistent storage. You're going to want to test mm -hmm. your network. And I know we talked about the end-to-end -end testing, but how do you write a, a test, a, a TDD test around persistent storage or around the network behavior? That is probably one of the hardest things. Well, I'm glad I asked. Yes. <laughs> um, starting with the network, um, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, one is if you like actually feel like you need to call the network, is setting your test up to try to call like an endpoint that you know will always return the same thing, at least as far as mm. your test is concerned. So maybe instead of calling something to get a random list of recipes, um, you call to get like a specific list of recipes. Um, so that's one way. Another is really, truly evaluating if you need, if you feel like you need that full test all the way to the network layer. There are libraries like Mock Web Server that you can basically say, when we call this URL, return this JSON. Um, and that's probably like the closest you can get to a real network call without actually making a network call. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a tool that I really like that one, it speeds up your test Two, it's really close to the actual thing. No, it won't catch if the API changes and your code doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully you'll probably find that pretty fast anyway. <laughs> you always do. Yeah. <laughs> it's always in the middle of the night too. Um, <laughs> because somebody decided to change it on the server end and didn't decide to tell the yeah. clients. And test right. it on the website. That's what I've found. <laughs> On the website. Right. Exactly. Um, so if if you do feel like you're in a place that you need to test for that, um, then the like actually hitting the network can be useful. Um, if what the project that you're working on feels safe enough that you don't need that, um, then using Mock Web Server is a good alternative. Mock Web um, Server. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll like include that. information like that, like uh, information about Makito, information about Mock Web Server in the show notes so that people can look those things up. Right. As, as well as obviously Android test driven development by tutorials, which was a <laughs> book that Victoria is one of the co-authors of. <laughs> yes, a lot of these things that I'm saying you will also find in that book. Um, <laughs> yeah. And let's see, going back to the networking. Um, it's kind of like, or not networking, um, persistent storage. Mm. Um, this one, there's a few different options for, especially since there's a few different types of persistent storage, whether that's shared preferences or maybe like a room database. Um, and depending on what you're using for storage, there's some different options. Um, for things like room, they provide an in-memory database that you can use that will like basically die at the end of your test. So you don't have to worry about it infecting whatever else is on your device. Um, not say infecting, the, like, no, yeah, not, not wrong word. Not infecting right now. <laughs> Impacting. That's good. That's better. Yes. Yeah, that's good. That was a good pivot. <laughs> good Impacting pivot. the rest of your test. Because if you want to test what the behavior is when your database is empty, um, 
then it's not going to do well if you already have stuff in your database. So using an in-memory database just kind of has a separate contained little database that's used for each test. It's reset for every test, and that helps your tests be more reliable if you can run them in any order, which is important because the tests shouldn't be dependent on each other in the order that they're run in. Um, there's a couple of different like database libraries that have similar things. When you're doing stuff like shared preferences, that's a bit trickier because they, as far as I know, there isn't something like that. So you can either make the decision to mock out a layer earlier and be like, okay, we're just not going to use the real thing. Or just make sure you're running on, on a testing device that it's okay if you mess with shared preferences. There's ways to clear it at the beginning and end of every test so everything resets. Um, and you can also use setup and teardown to be like, okay, these are the defaults that I want. Or for this specific test, I need to make sure this is already set in shared preferences. Um, so that one's a little bit trickier just because you are working with the real shared preferences mm. in the app. Um, so that can be trickier, but hopefully yeah. you're working you're with a separate, <laughs> separate build or separate device then. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> what you're using personally. Do you, um, so one of the things that I've struggled with as an Android developer is kind of getting that like integration layer mm -hmm. up and running. I think that I've, I've become decent at writing unit tests. But I don't think I've figured out how to how to really write good tests that marry multiple systems. Like, mm -hmm. for example, I'll write tests for, say, my view models, like the little companions to views or whatever. Yeah. Um, but kind of how a view model might interact with, you know, a, a different view model for a new activity or new fragment or, or how it actually interacts with a repository or a use case, like how the whole system works together. I don't feel like I have a good answer for that yet. Do you mm -hmm. have you figured out any sort of like tips and tricks to actually getting sort of those glue layers tested? Um, yeah. And this has changed a bit. It's like, I've, I've gone back and forth along like the spectrum of what is an integration test right now. Mm. I'm using like a UI test for a single like fragment, say, or a single sure. view. Um, and it's taken a lot of learning more about our dependency injection so mm. that we can open that screen like normal, but things like we down like by the network layer, I try to mock that out for an integration test because I don't want it hitting the network. So usually like at the repository or network layer, I want to mock that out, but that can be hard in an integration <laughs> test. Yeah. Um, so the biggest thing there is like learning what testing tools your dependency injection is using. And mm. if you're not using dependency injection to learn how to add dependency <laughs> injection to your app, because <laughs> it really does help a lot with testing. Like two of the biggest things that helps when you need to write like UI and integration tests into your app are having dependency injection and like a mindful architecture. Yeah, I think that that's one of the spots where there's kind of been this like whole architecture wave in Android development, right? Where people figured mm -hmm. out like, hey, maybe we should plan out these apps more than zero. <laughs> and I think 
it, it does feel like testing has been like the pusher. Like, how can I test stuff? Feels like such a fundamental push with all this, all the architecture stuff that's been going on. Yeah, absolutely. And when you like do start having that habit of trying to write tests and everything, it, it encourages even more like maintainable and testable architecture. Because yeah. a lot of the things that make an architecture maintainable also make it testable. Yeah. Um, so they kind of like help each other out where it's like, if you're writing maintainable code, it's easier to test. And if you're writing tests, you want to write more maintainable code. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like. I think that that was, that was like a huge revelation for me. Because I, I was confused about why people were doing this dependency injection stuff, because it just felt like a lot of code for mm-hmm. Russian gains. And then as soon as you go to write some tests, you're like, oh, OK, I get it. I get all. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I had that moment, um, I was like writing this small little sample app and I was like, it's a small little app. I'm not going to put in dependency injection. Mm-hmm. OK, let me go write tests. Oh. <laughs> I want 120% code coverage and I want unit tests on the unit tests. <laughs> so we call it test driven development. And that mm-hmm. is we write the tests to figure out how to write the code. Does this basically mean that I can only use TDD on new code? No. Um. So you can... You do write the tests first, but you don't only write the test first when you're writing new code. You can also write the test first if you're going to fix a bug. So if you find a bug, you write a test, a failing test for what the behavior is supposed to be that it's not meeting. And then it's failing and then you fix the bug and then it's passing. Another is to do with refactoring. And... How many times? I know I've refactored so many times where I'm like, this feels dangerous. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm refactoring. I'm on the the iOS world where Swift 2 to Swift 3 meant a complete rewrite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so if you like write tests around, okay, this is the expected behavior of what we already have. Write tests for it. Um, and depending on how the code's architected, you might have to like go up like a level, like it might need to be closer to an end to end or integration, depending on the refactorings that you need to do, or like the existing architecture that maybe you're trying to make more testable. Um, so that once you write those tests and this is the exception where they might pass when you first write them, still try to tweak something to make sure they fail. (laughs) You know, they're testing the right thing. Um, But then you can start refactoring and you have something that will tell you if you broke something while you were refactoring rather than clicking around Mm. in the app. Well, I think it still works the same way. (laughs) Yeah, regression testing is definitely, definitely necessary to make sure you haven't broken anything that was working before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... I know that can be difficult, especially with legacy apps that don't have any of this architecture. Yeah. Um, I know I've, it's, it can be easier to like, even though it's set, we say like, do mostly unit tests. Well, what if it's not architected in a way you can do unit tests? Yeah. Then like, okay, you start with your like end to end or like UI test at what, like whatever level you can just kind of like, look at what your constraints are. Where can you like, where can you cut a line so that it's as small as possible, but 
it may need to be bigger. Then you have those tests and then you can refactor that into smaller parts. Um, and then once you have your smaller parts, you can reevaluate. Can you write smaller unit tests for those parts and maybe delete some of your bigger mm. tests because deleting tests can feel great. Um, <laughs> deleting code in general. I love it when I like refactor something and it's like, okay, that class delete because we have Beautiful. fresh new Kotlin code and that mm. Java code is gone. Um, Such a good feeling. So good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. And that's, that's, um, basically like the strangler pattern where you like start with like a little like branch of your code. You kind of like strangle it with tests. Um, then like underneath that you can like rewrite it and refactor it as you please. And you're like, I know it's still working because those tests are there. Um, then you can move on to the next part. Um, it's a little bit less daunting. What a nefarious than... name for what a, for <laughs> such a nice pattern. <laughs> I think it was like named after these like really cool vines that kind of like wrap themselves around a tree and then like eventually like it's just the shape of the vines because I don't know. I have to mm. look at it again. <laughs> um, I, I saw it once. Um, I think Lance wrote about it in our book and it, it's it's a really cool plant. Speaking of a, mm. enough tests, I know that Alex has actually taken some of the stuff we've done in previous weeks. He's been looking at the coroutines. Mm. Um, and I'm curious to hear how that's going and how you might consider adding in some of the TDD now that you've got that under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been uh, the app that I'm currently working on. It recently started migrating from doing all of our sort of threading stuff with RxJava to doing a lot of it with coroutines. And this has kind of been my first opportunity to really work professionally with coroutines. And it's been an interesting ride. So there's been a lot of like really fun parts where there's kind of some magic that you can do, um, you know, that we learned about in a previous episode. But <laughs> Uh, like delaying, you know, being able to just say, hey, I'd like to sleep for a second and have it not be an anti-pattern is a really cool thing to be able to do. But there's definitely been some stumbling blocks, especially when it comes to testing. Um, so there's these. So in when I would use RxJava, I would usually do stuff like pass in, you know, use dependency injection to send my RxJava schedulers in so I could control like what thread stuff is running on so that in my tests, I could just have it all run in a, a single thread and I'd know that everything was synchronous. And there's mechanisms to kind of do that with coroutines, but instead of sort of passing things through into, into the classes that are utilizing coroutines, there's a few different sort of magic options. Um, there's a thing where you can just like globally assign the main dispatcher, uh, to be, you know, whatever you choose. And then there are, are interesting like testing blocks. Like there's one called run blocking test, which kind of swaps some stuff out under the hood. And it's the sort of thing where it works really well 90% of the time. And then I spend all of the time that I, I gained from coroutines trying to debug the other 10% of the time. So it's been, it's been uh, quite a journey. It's definitely something that I'm excited to learn a lot more about, but I've, there's definitely been some stumbling blocks, especially when it comes to testing. So Stumbling blocks, fun. Stumbling blocks in your coroutine code. Bad pun. Bad pun. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. Sign up. I think at that point we should 
Thank Victoria for joining us on the show today. It has been very informative to learn about test-driven development, especially because I know it's something that I've been wanting to do on my platform as well. And I know it's much of what is probably in that book will work for me as well. I probably will look through this book as well as iOS test-driven development by tutorials because it'll be a little more applicable to my side of things. But it's good to know that test-driven development is very usable on all those platforms. Victoria, again, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Victoria, you can find on Twitter at TT Gonda, that's G-O-N-D-A, Alex Nyer, Rarely on Twitter, but can be found there. Alex Sullivan 444. I'm Podcast Drew. That's D-R-U. In two weeks, we will have Andy Pereira on the show to talk about Catalyst. Catalyst, that wonderful way to suddenly have your iOS app run on the Mac. Two weeks after that, our next Android episode, Brian Capitz is going to be on to be uh, talking about Flutter. And we've all been waiting about that. It's that inventive way to get Android apps working on your iOS and vice versa and <laughs> things like that. It's a very interesting thing. For those of you listening to the podcast, we invite you to look for this episode in about two weeks on YouTube. The video episode will contain some of the information we left on the cutting room floor and a little bit more of a casual after show that will carry on shortly with our guest. We hope you check it out. In the meantime, we head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.